they had a number of individuals who had just a number of challenges with consistently taking medicines, a large proportion of whom were viremic. And so they treated those individuals with cabinuva and they had a very high success rate in the 90% range. And that, you know, really triggered a lot of excitement because I think there are a lot of, you know, treaters out there who would like to use cabinuva in that setting. That's Dr. Kimberly Smith. Later, we'll hear more from her about recent developments in HIV research. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, July 7th. And to kick off the news rundown, we've got my colleague Andrea Park to help me share this week's top biopharma and medtech industry news. Andrea, thanks for doing the news rundown with me today. Yeah, of course. Humira, uh, which treats arthritis, plaque psoriasis, among other things, has another biosimilar. So far, there have been nine total copycats to hit the market this year. Zoe Becker reported this story about the latest biosimilar, which comes from Boehringer Ingelheim, and it's called Siltizo. So, Andrea, what makes Boehringer's biosimilar different from the rest? Yeah, so it's the only one to have an interchangeability tag, which allows it to be directly substituted for Humira at the pharmacy. The drug, Siltizo, was proven to be interchangeable in a phase three switching study, which switched patients between Humira and Siltizo multiple times, and it was approved for interchangeability in 2021. So what comes next for Siltizo? It is approved. When will it be available and for how much? Yeah, so... Boehringer is rolling out the med at about 7% below Humira's list price now. And Boehringer's Stephen Pagnota told Zoe Becker in an email that it's going to begin selling it at two different price points next year in 2024. But Siltizo isn't the only one with this strategy. Biocon is also doing this with its Humira copycat called Julio. And that option will enter the market with one price point 5% below Humira's list price and another at an 85% discount. Humira's list price currently stands at $6,653 per month, according to GoodRx. Uh, on another note, Fraser Kansteiner reported this week on how foreign pharmaceutical investments are progressing in China, despite the political tensions between Washington and Beijing. Teresa, what did Fraser have to say about Moderna? Yeah, Moderna has drafted a memorandum of understanding, plus also a land collaboration agreement. The goal of these agreements are threefold to find opportunities to research, to develop, and to manufacture mRNA medicines in China. A Chinese news outlet, Yikai Global, reported that the deal could be worth up to $1 billion. But Fraser received a statement from Moderna, and it said that any drugs produced under the agreement will be exclusively for people in China and will not be exported. And Moderna's CEO, Stefan Bansell, was just in Shanghai for a signing ceremony. Yes, he was. And back in May, Moderna set up a biotechnology unit in Shanghai. And a month before that, Bansell laid plans to ramp up investments in Shanghai and team up with Chinese partners on research, development, and production. So there's been some activity going on there. On Monday, AstraZeneca posted results from a drug trial showing that their new drug increases survival rates among lung cancer patients. But oddly, it didn't get a warm reception from investors. In fact, AstraZeneca saw 6% wiped off its share price. So what happened there? Yeah, the AstraZeneca drug we're talking about is called Datopotamab Deruxtecan, or Dato DXD for short. 
It's an antibody drug conjugate that AstraZeneca has been developing as an attempt to repeat the success of its blockbuster cancer drug in HER2. AstraZeneca had big ambitions. It paid a billion dollars to Daiichi Senkyo to acquire the drug in 2020. And what has happened since then? How did those ambitions play out? Yeah, James Waldron reported this story, and he wrote that the drug faced its first obstacle as a result of the investor reaction to Monday's phase three trial results. While the drug demonstrated a significant improvement in progression-free survival, which was one of the study's primary endpoints, the study hasn't yet hit the other major goal of confirming an improvement in overall survival. Still, AstraZeneca had been warning that not all the data would be available at this point, so it won't have come as a big shock. But what's more likely to have given investors the jitters is the revelation that some patients had died during the trial. Mm -hmm. As AstraZeneca didn't provide more details on exactly how many patients died or what adverse event they suffered from, it's no surprise that shareholders got nervous. Yeah, well, we'll need to wait for more information, I guess, to see if those concerns are justified. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing the news with me. Yeah, anytime. Hey, you may have heard about our new report that we're launching this year, The Fierce 50. We're assembling the most accomplished visionaries and trailblazers, handpicked by our brilliant editors here at Fierce Life Sciences and Healthcare. These 50 people are the movers and shakers who are igniting change in healthcare delivery, drug development, research, and beyond. And we just announced the categories, so take a look at the show notes to find out and spread the word. Stay tuned because this is just the beginning of the Fierce 50 journey. In recent years, there's been a shift in how HIV treatment is done. Instead of the usual daily oral pills, a new trend is emerging with two drug injectables. These injectables are becoming popular because they offer some great benefits. Traditionally, HIV treatment involved taking three or more antiretroviral drugs every day. It's been effective in controlling the disease, but let's face it, sticking to a daily pill routine can be tough for some people. GSK's Vive Healthcare recently introduced the world's first full, long-acting HIV regimen, Cabanuva, which can be given every two months. And both Merck and Gilead Sciences are working on long-acting HIV drugs as well. But uptake has been relatively slow. Doctors treating HIV patients need time to become familiar with an injectable drug and its workflow, and the requirement to seek a healthcare provider every two months can still be challenging for some patients. So that leaves room for improvement. Angus Liu sat down with Vive's head of research and development, Dr. Kimberly Smith, to talk about these new HIV therapies. Here they are. Welcome, Kim. Thank you, Angus. My pleasure to be here. Uh, it's, Pride, it's Pride Month. Um, unfortunately, uh, HIV still dispro- uh, disproportionately affects gay and bisexual men and certain minorities. Um, many people in uh, the justice system who are homeless still struggle to receive proper treatment for HIV. So, Kim, uh, what are drug developers doing to improve care for people living with HIV? Well, you know, our goal is to make HIV treatment simpler, um, to try to lessen the number of medicines that people need, to make the side effect profiles improved. Uh, And and long-acting therapy is a big part of that. I think that, you know, when I think back to the folks who have had the most trouble consistently getting their virus suppressed and keeping it suppressed, 
I feel like those folks would benefit from long acting therapy. And that's actually part of what, you know, motivated me to go from, you know, academic research, academic care to, uh, to industry, to be a part of developing long acting medicines to address not just convenience, but actually to be able to try to get to the point where you have individuals, no matter what their life experience is, that they have a good chance of, of having uh, their HIV be under control. Right. Uh, we'll touch upon uh, those uh, patients with different uh, various um, experience, life experience. But first, um, Capanuva is currently a bimonthly treatment. Um, we're definitely, for long-acting uh, regimens, we're proposing a more convenient uh, approach to uh, tackling HIV. But I heard administration may still be a challenge right now. I mean, Capanova is still an injection that must be stored in the fridge and administered by a healthcare professional, meaning you still need to go in and see someone to get that injection. Uh, are these challenges, are, are they surmountable, especially in some of the less well-off regions? I do think the challenges are surmountable. Um, so, you know, every two months, you need to get two injections. They're intermuscular injections. And yes, the medicine is stored uh, in the refrigerator. But uh, in some settings where, you know, individuals are, you know, sort of having trouble with consistently taking their daily medicines, this actually helps them because it, it creates basically directly observed therapy. And mm -hmm. so, you know, even though every two months is more often than some individuals come in for uh, doctor's visits, it certainly is an improvement over, um, you know, what early ideas around directly observed therapy where you literally were having folks find ways to see someone take their medicine every day. And so, you know, it really wasn't feasible to think about directly observed therapy when it was daily. But with it being every two months, it certainly is feasible. And so it gives you, you know, a lot more options for creativity around how you treat people and how you can get treatment to some populations that may have more challenges with adherence to daily therapy. Right. Let's talk about those patients who have challenges uh, uh, suppressing their HIV on current uh, oral meds. You know, Kevinova obviously is currently approved for patients who are already virologically suppressed. It seems to me that uh, long-acting injectables are sort of the icing on the cake for these patients, offering a, a convenience uh, for them who already have their condition under control within a well-established system. So, I think to me that these long-acting regimens, I think you, you you talked about that too, would be a, a, of greater help for patients who have difficulties adhering to daily pills. So what are you doing uh, right now to potentially get a long-acting mass to those whose HIV isn't properly controlled on existing oral medications? Any challenges you face at the moment? Well, let me, let me address this in two ways. First, I, with regard to individuals who are suppressed, I think it's the assumption is that they are doing great, that they're okay, that everything's fine. And the reality is that, you know, we found this in our trials, is that a lot of those people, even though they have managed to get their virus suppressed, they still experience a lot of anxiety, a lot of emotional challenges related to being on 
a pill every day, that sort of daily reminder mm. of uh, the fact that they're living with HIV, this fear that someone might see their medicines and, and that discloses that they're living with HIV and, and anxiety about forgetting to take their medicine. So there's a lot that can be going on with individuals, even if they have managed to take their medicines well enough to get detectable. So, so for those individuals, yes, something like Cabanuva is um, not just more convenient. It's actually mm-hmm. life-changing for them because they get freedom from a lot of those, those mm-hmm. challenges. So, you know, I, I think it's more than just convenience for, for folks with depressed virus. It's uh, a virus. constant reminder of, the, Absolutely. of HIV. But, but then uh, that population that you're talking about that is not suppressed and that may have difficulty with daily orals, we've been trying to get at that population in a number of ways. One of those ways is that, you know, we're finding ways to make our studies examine individuals getting suppressed faster. So, you know, one of the thing, one of the studies we're doing in partnership with the AIDS Clinical Trials Group or ACTG, a study called Latitude, is for that population of folks who have had adherence challenges in the past. And the study initially was designed sort of similar to our pivotal studies in that folks needed to be, to be suppressed for, you know, around 20 weeks or so before they could go to long acting. But it, it recently has been modified that says as soon as individuals get their viral loads suppressed, which could be as short as a month, then they could switch over uh, to Mm. long acting. And so we're trying to find ways to get long acting to more people sooner. Mm -hmm. So so there's that group that is still suppressed when they start on uh, Cabanuva, but they haven't been on orals for very long. Mm-hmm. And then there's a third group of, of folks who are not suppressed and, and they, they, they are unwilling or unable to take uh, daily oral therapy. And we, we did, from the time we've been developing the product, we had a compassionate use program for people who you know, needed an injectable medicine and, and couldn't take oral medicines. And so we had some of that data um, available and we've, we've published that and put that in the public domain and people, you know, were, were excited to see that. So the combination of all of those things has triggered some investigators to start to use Cabanuva in individuals who are viremic. Now that's mm. off-label use. It's not mm. what's in our label. Mm. Uh, but, you know, at CROI this year, Monica Gandhi presented some data from uh, San Francisco in the Ward 86 clinic where they had a number of individuals who are marginally housed, who had just a number of challenges with consistently taking medicines, a large proportion of whom were viremic. And so they treated those individuals with Cabanuva and they had a very high success rate comparable to what we saw in our pivotal trials in the 90% range. And that you know, really triggered a lot of excitement because I think there are a lot of you know, treaters out there who would like to use Cabanuva in that setting. So, but I assume you wouldn't be able to use that kind of data for a regulatory filing. Well, we couldn't use a sort of a, a cohort like that because you know they're so different. I mean, you know, you, mm. you have to have sort of a protocol to be able to say, you know, who are the patients? What what is a what's the have a relatively mm. uniform population? We would not be able to use data like that for an F, FDA filing. Uh, and it and it is very much off label. It is not on label at at all. However, 
we are looking into how we might be able to do a study that could allow us to get um, a label indication that would include viremic people, particularly viremic folks who you know have had tough time taking oral medicines. But the challenge with that is that you know when you think about typical study design, it would be you know Cabanuva versus versus oral standard, standard of care, oral. Mm-hmm. right? So if if you've already understand that that population is not going to be good at taking daily oral, then it seems unfair and actually potentially dangerous to them to randomize them to, uh, to standard of care. And so we're looking at some sort of novel study designs that might allow us to, uh, to, to get to uh, a label. And so one of those is that, you know, the FDA has recently put out some guidance around using sort of an external control. So if you could have an external control that looks very comparable to the population that you have in the clinical trial, you might be able to utilize that. And so that's one of the ways that that we'll explore. We'll talk to the regulatory agencies and agree on a path. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I I would love for uh, Cabanuva to be able to be used in more folks that have difficulty with consistent adherence, because I I really do think that's the only way we're going to get to the end of the epidemic is if we can get, you know, folks, no matter, you know, their life experience, if we can get them access to medicines that can get them consistently suppressed. Right. Yeah. So, Kim, you mentioned that it could be dangerous uh, to put some of those patients on uh, a daily oral arm household. Well, so, you know, if you if you're taking daily oral, if you're prescribed daily oral and you take it inconsistently, then you're at risk for developing resistance. And so, you know, you your virus doesn't suppress, you develop resistance. And particularly if you're a, a population that has a relatively low CD4 cell count, then you're at risk for you know, the medicines not being effective for you in the future and actually progression to AIDS. And so, you know, you don't want to give a population that's known to have adherence challenges, um, you know, a daily oral without really doing something substantial to, to help assist with them consistently mm-hmm. taking their medicines. Right. Uh, okay, I think you mentioned that uh, twice, uh, once every two months probably still is in an ideal situation. And uh, obviously, uh, drug developers, including Vive, uh, are working on potentially even extending the treatment interval to longer. I think one of the approaches is broadly neutralizing antibodies. Um, the idea, I think, has been around for some time, and this is obviously a promising new approach to HIV treatment and prevention. But uh, my question is, why haven't we seen any um, fruition of research in that area in neutralizing, uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies? Well, there is a little bit of research that's out there. So, you know, actually, even now we have another collaboration that we're doing with the ACTG, which is uh, a study that is looking at using cabotegavir in combination with a broadly neutralizing antibody. And that that antibody is one that can be, you know, dosed, you know, every maybe as much as infrequently as every six months. So there are some studies that that are that are looking at it. That's one of the few. I, Gilead has a study that where they've looked at 
their long acting medicine in combination with broadly neutralizing antibodies. So these studies are early. Um, but the I think some of the hesitation is that there hasn't been a great assay to help you know whether or not people are sensitive to a broadly neutralizing antibody. Mm. And so, you know, just like we know, you know, we do a test before people start on their antiretrovirals to, to make sure they're sensitive, they don't have transmitted resistance to any particular medicine, we can do that for the usual classes. But for broadly neutralizing antibodies, we haven't had that. And there is an experimental uh, assay that's out there that is very labor intensive, quite difficult to do. And so, but that's being used in the studies that I, that I mentioned. I think we have to get to better testing and make that sort of easier that you can do it in a, in a routine clinic. And then, you know, we have to get really broad, effective, broadly neutralizing antibodies in order to make sure that, you, you know, the likelihood of somebody having resistance to it is very low. Mm-hmm. Right. Speaking of uh, essays, I mean, during our meetup at Bio, you mentioned this new European regulation, a proposed regulation on drugs. Part of it requires that every diagnostic test for a clinical trials must obtain certification, the CE mark first. Mm-hmm. So just how will that impact clinical trials like those for HIV and retrovirus, like the one you, you just said, neutralizing antibodies, if it's uh, implemented? Um, it can have quite a negative impact, actually, um, because, you know, not not all of the tests that are routinely used even now, not genotypes, phenotypes uh, for HIV are there in Europe. They're not routinely uh, have the CE markings on them. They're mm-hmm. often done at the local uh, local labs. And you know, those would not be, those wouldn't be deemed acceptable if these new rules went into a place. And so it's a potential limitation to both doing clinical trials and potentially launching uh, new medicines with new mechanisms of action in, in, in Europe and other environments that would require that type of certification. Again, we always want the diagnostic tests to be as accurate as they can be, and we want them to be effective, but we also need them to be readily available. Uh, and so, you know, that's, I think, a potentially a conundrum going forward in making sort of newer medicines available if, if those types of restrictions uh, continue to be in place. Right. Um, I think just a three-month therapies, uh, six-month therapy, I think still the ultimate goal is to cure HIV. Um, we we recently saw, I think, the fifth case uh, where a patient's uh, HIV appeared to have been cured after receiving stem cell transplant, mm-hmm. uh, which was meant to treat blood cancer. So, Kim, is stem cell transplant a viable approach to treat and cure HIV? Not broadly. Um, I mean, it's not something that's scalable, right? So when we think about um, stem cell transplant and the the complexity of it, the risk of it. I mean, people still have very horrible complications related to stem cell transplants. It's not something you can scale for the 38 million people that are living with HIV around the world. It's exciting that some people have been able to be cured, and it certainly potentially creates a path where you could imagine learning from those cases. But that that, that in itself is not something that's scalable to all of the people that are living with HIV. I think we need something that is, you know, that can, that can be available to everyone. You know, we don't, we don't want to get to a cure 
that is only available to folks in developed countries or folks that are in the richest countries. We want to get to a cure that we can make scalable and available for everyone. And so, you know, I think there's a lot to learn from those cases, but but that's that's not a strategy. Yeah. Before I let you go, Kim,、uh, you know, Vive is one of the very few companies、uh, that are working still working in HIV, and I mean. Johnson and Johnson, your partner on Capanova, recently wound down research、uh, in HIV and infectious diseases in general.、Um, so, do you think right now there are still enough competitions out there to、uh, push forward innovations and、uh, research into、uh, HIV? Well, I wish there were more、um, because you know, I, I, I while. HIV is a mature therapeutic area, and that there are a number of options for treatment. Boy, we still could do a lot better, and that's you know that's where we're trying to go. And so, more companies sort of pushing each other and challenging each other, and really motivating each other to、uh, to, to get to better and better、uh, medicines ultimately will benefit patients. And so, you know, I, I you know I welcome competition. We're definitely looking forward to. Uh, even longer acting HIV treatment. Okay,、uh, thank you, Kim. Thank you so much for your time today. This was great. Thank you, Angus. That's it for the top line. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's the bottom line from the top line.